It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Farts and Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so, so much for listening. I'm flying solo for today's pod, but there is a lot that I would like to cover I didn't release a podcast after the Hatayspor match, but I did post a 10 quick takeaways piece on it, so be sure to check that one out if you want to know how that match went. I'll still make reference to that match here and there, but mostly by way of comparison to the match against Girona on Wednesday. The way I'm going to structure this episode is as follows. I'll start with some general thoughts on the match and whether the result actually means anything. Spoiler alert, I think this draw means just as little as the draw against Spal did. Then I'll use Napoli's starting 11 against Girona as a means to cover both the match and the latest news around the club. That'll probably make more sense as I go through the podcast. I'll talk about Napoli's performance in the penalty shootout, which was one of the big positives for me from this friendly. And then I'll close by talking about whether we already have an injury crisis at these very early stages of the season. And finally, the poor access to the match and what that implies about our club. So let's get right into it. Further to the last point, I don't know how many of you got to watch the match, but it finished 1-1 after normal time. Christian Stuani opened the scoring in the 13th minute, and Giovanni Simeone equalized from the spot a few minutes before the break. Neither team scored in the second half, but just for fun, they did a penalty shootout to determine the winner, which turned out to be Napoli by a score of 3-1. So let's begin with Napoli's starting 11, which initially caught me off guard, but after I thought about it, I can understand Garcia's decisions. He played Pierluigi Golini in goal, Juan Jesus and Leo Ostegard at centre-back, Nosa Oberetin and Alessandro Zanoli 
at left and right back respectively. Eli Velmas played in the center of the midfield with Michael Folorunchel to his left and Karim Zadadka to his right. Chucky Lozano played on the left wing, Alessio Zerbin played on the right wing, and Giovanni Simeone played at striker. Now, when the club posted this lineup, I was genuinely confused about what the formation might be. Typically, the club posts the players in the order of their positions. Keeper, right back to left back, right mid to left mid, and right wing to left wing. So you can infer what the formation is just from the order of the list of players. That would have suggested a 4-4-2 formation with Lozano and Simeone as the front two. It almost looked like that was the formation at the start of the match, but in the end, it turned out to be, or it reverted to a traditional 4-3-3, and the posted lineup simply was not in any order. So Garcia fielded his B team for the first hour, and I can think of two reasons why he would do that. The first is because the match against Hatay Spor was only four days prior to this one, so I assume Garcia didn't want to overexert his players. Even though players don't really take any time off these days, the coaches always treat the summer as a bit of a restart and slowly build their players up to full match fitness. So this was just a form of injury prevention, I think, though I guess it didn't really work. We'll come back to that in part two. The second reason Garcia fielded this squad is because he's still assessing which players to keep and which players to send away. If you watch the open training sessions between Saturday and Wednesday, you would know that Garcia, like Spalletti, likes to close his training sessions with inter-squad matches on a reduced pitch. I believe it was on the Sunday or the Monday, but Garcia fielded these same players for the inter-squad match, and I think it was for the same reasons. He didn't want to overexert the starters after they played against Hatay Spor, and he wanted to assess the quality of his reserve players. So let's talk about those reserve players individually, and then, as I said, I'll provide some news updates and opinions as we go along. So Golini started in goal. I don't have a whole lot to say about him. There wasn't a whole lot that he could do on the Girona goal. Besides the goal, Girona had only one decent strike on target, and it was pretty much straight at him. Juan Jesus and Leo Ostegard started at center back. Jesus ended up playing the full 90 minutes. When Garcia made his changes, it appeared that Luigi Davino was going to come on, but for some reason he just went back to the bench and Jesus finished the match. Ostegard didn't have the greatest day, he was entirely at fault for the Girona goal. For those of you who might not have seen it, he picked up the ball around midfield, turned to pass back to Golini and passed straight into the path of Christian Stuani. I don't know if he just didn't look up or if he mishit the ball, it was probably a little bit of both, but Stuani did well to anticipate the pass and then his finish was very cool as well. Now, we probably don't need to overreact to this particular play. Every player makes mistakes. You might recall Amir Rachmani did the same thing against Udinese, which was his first start for Napoli, and that was a league match, not preseason, but obviously Rachmani turned out to be just fine. Hopefully Ostegard got it out of his system and it doesn't happen again in a more meaningful match. That being said, I do not think Ostegard is quite ready yet to be a starting center back for the defending champions of Italy. If anything, right now, it looks like it's a bit of a toss-up between Ostegard and Juan Jesus as to who will be the third centre-back, never mind the starters. As I said, Jesus played the full 90 minutes against Girona, and he was actually the only player who wasn't replaced at some point in the second half. So the question was, at least at that point, who will be the starter alongside Amir Rachmani? Who will be the Kim Min-Jae replacement? That's the question we've been asking ourselves all summer, 
and we finally got the answer, but not before we were linked to a couple of other players. On Thursday, we learned that the guy that most Napoli fans wanted, Kevin Danzo, signed a contract extension with Lenz. Apparently, Lenz wanted at least 30 million euros for him, and Napoli were only willing to offer 22 million. Napoli were reportedly offering him a higher salary, but I suppose it's possible that he leveraged Napoli's offer to get a higher salary at Lenz. Now, Danzo's extension itself did not prohibit Napoli from purchasing him, albeit for a significantly higher price because he would have then been on a longer-term contract. However, the video that Lenz posted to announce Danzo's extension was a pretty strong indication that they had no intention of selling Danzo to Napoli. That video pissed off a lot of Napoli fans who are now hoping and praying that we draw Lenz in the Champions League so we can exact revenge on them. Knowing how corrupt UEFA is, it wouldn't shock me in the least if that happened. Now, we were linked to a whole host of names, some of who were names we'd already been linked to and some of who were brand new. I didn't spend a whole lot of time researching these players because there were just too many players that we were linked to. As of Friday, Max Kilman of Wolves was still amongst the candidates. My sense all along was that Kilman was simply too expensive. Wolves were asking for something like 40 million euros. Now, I've had lots of conversations with Napoli fans who will tell you that Napoli are reigning champions. We just sold Kim for 50 million. We should be willing to spend all of that money on a replacement. That's a fair argument and I respect that opinion. My response would be that simply spending more doesn't always mean you're going to get the best player. We spent something like 36 million euros on Costas Manolas and he turned out to be a bust. Then we spent only 18 million euros, half of what we spent on Manolas to get Kim, and he was the best defender in the league last season. The other thing I would say is, if we had that just spend the money mentality, we never would have won the Scudetto last year, at least not in my opinion. We may not always agree with De Laurentiis' approach, whether it's imposing a salary cap or making 100 kits or whatever it might be, but these decisions have kept the club financially stable. That's what allowed us to buy a player like Osimhen and to continue to buy and sell players while the rest of the top clubs were all drowning in debt. It's a very slippery slope when you start splashing cash on transfer fees and when you start to give everyone pay increases. All it takes is a couple of wrong decisions or a string of bad results, and before you know it, you're outside of the top four. We saw that happen with Ancelotti and the whole mutiny, and had it not been for Spalletti, there could have been very serious financial repercussions from missing the Champions League for multiple consecutive seasons. Anyhow, Bosco Sutolo of Dinamo Zagreb was another player that we were still linked to, though he always seemed to be more likely to join Ajax or Fiorentina. Likewise, we were still linked to Costas Mavropanos, but he's more likely to join Atletico Madrid. The latest reports are that Stuttgart have given Atletico a deadline before they will go back to the market. And then there were three new names that appeared on Friday. One was Felix Udokai of Augsburg, who we will get a first-hand look at this weekend when we play Augsburg at Castel di Sangro on Sunday. The other two currently play in Brazil, Nathan of Red Bull Bragantino and Murillo of Corinthians. Both of them seem to fit the mold of players we tend to seek out. Young, talented, inexpensive, but having big potential upside. 
And then Friday evening in Italy, Friday afternoon here in North America, reports surfaced that terms had been agreed to with Nathan and that he would be flying into Italy in the next 48 hours to have his medicals done. From the little that I've read about him, he's not quite as good as Murillo, but Murillo's development has been quicker playing at Corinthians, which is a bigger club than Bragantino. The reports are that Napoli will pay somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 11 million euros plus bonuses for the player, 10% of which will go to Flamengo. I've also read that 18% of that fee will go to Porto Vitoria, and that he's agreed to a five-year contract with Napoli expiring in 2028. Apparently, Garcia already had a long conversation with him with the help of Juan Jesus as translator. Jesus and Mario Rui will be very useful players to help Nathan adjust to life in Italy. If Nathan turns out to be the guy, then once again, Napoli would have snagged a player that even the best transfer journalists had no idea that we were even talking to. Now, if this deal does go through in the next couple days, then I will try to get a Brazilian football expert on the pod to profile Nathan. In the meantime, there are plenty of scouting reports and YouTube compilations that you can check out. Moving on to fullback, Mario Rui did not play while he continues to recover from his hamstring injury, so Noso Obedetin played at left back. I've already talked about Obedetin, so I won't spend too much time on him here. I'll just repeat what Dan Bowen mentioned last time, which is that he seems very comfortable playing with the senior team, which is a great sign. He nearly scored from a corner kick, but his header finished on the roof of the goal. I still don't think he will make the senior team, though. And one correction that I should make from the last chat we had about Oberetin is that I don't believe he is eligible to play for the Primavera any longer because he turned 20 in January. You're allowed to have a couple of players who are U20 as opposed to U19, but he is not even U20 anymore. That means that if we want to keep him, he needs to remain with the senior team, which is still possible because he can fill one of those club-raised roster positions that I've mentioned previously. Alessandro Zanoli started at right back. Off the top of my head, I can't think of too many plays that really stood out from Zanoli. His immediate future with Napoli continues to remain in the balance. He's been linked to Genoa for a while. Apparently Sporting Lisbon are interested in him as well. And of course, we remain linked to Davide Faraoni. I'm only slightly nervous about this one just because Hellas Verona would have to replace Faraoni if they sold him. So I think there's a point at which they would just pull the plug. Though I suppose if that happens, then we'll just keep Zanoli. And right now, it's looking more likely that Zanoli stays than we get Faraoni. Moving on to the midfield... The ever-versatile Elif Elmas played as the deep-lying playmaker with Michael Foloruncho to his left and Karim Zadadka to his right. Regarding Elmas, the key for me was that he played. He suffered a thigh muscle strain that kept him out of the Hatay Spor match, and he didn't complete a single group training session prior to this match against Girona, so that suggests that he's recovered from his injury, and I'll come back to that a little bit more in part two. For me... Foloruncho was one of the men of the match alongside Giovanni Simeone. In fact, he's been one of the standouts for me all summer. In the first half of this match alone, he teed up Lozano for a chance that the Mexican probably should have taken, and he won the penalty kick. At halftime, I tweeted that Foloruncho is making a strong case for the role of backup to Andre Frank Zombo and Gisa. And then, of course, almost immediately after that tweet, Nico Skira tweeted that Foloruncho's loan to Verona 
is in the final stages. Now, who knows? Maybe that will change because of the injury to Angisa that was confirmed by the club on Friday. Angisa suffered a first-degree distraction of the soleus muscle in the right leg, so that is a calf strain. The club said he's already doing therapy and will be evaluated in the coming weeks. Most experts are reporting a 3-4 to four week recovery time, which means there's a good chance that he will miss the opening match of the season against Frosinone, and possibly also the second match of the season, which is against Sassuolo. That injury now puts added pressure on the club to sign another midfielder. It also further justifies the investment, because we already know that Anguissa could miss up to a month in January for AFCON if Cameroon qualify, and now he has this injury. And just like that, the papers were flooded with reports that Napoli are pushing for Atalanta's Tuncoop Miners, and that De Laurentiis is willing to pay 30 million euros for him. I like Coop Miners, but I think this is going to be a very difficult purchase to complete. Aside from the fact that Atalanta are notoriously difficult to negotiate with, for Napoli at least, they seem to have no problem giving their players to Juventus, Atalanta are not desperate for cash. Between the sale of Jeremy Boga to Nice and the impending sale of Rasmus Hoyland to Manchester United, they will have generated close to 100 million euros in revenue. They've already spent about 38 million euros on El Bilal Toure and Mitchell Backer, but when you factor in amortization, if the transfer window ended today, Atalanta would have recorded a capital gain of roughly 90 million euros. So unless Coombe Miners forces a transfer out, Atalanta are going to be very pricey and very difficult to negotiate with. Another player who was an option up until this week was Daichi Kamada, but he has now signed with Lazio. I really cannot understand why Napoli did not go after Kamada. The only reason I can think of is his salary at 4 million euros net per season was higher than what we want to pay our players, and apparently the agent commissions were really high in this transaction as well. But he was a Bosman signing, there was no transfer fee. We would probably have no problem paying a 20 million euro fee and 2 million euros a year in salary for a player. On a 5 year contract, that would be the equivalent of 8 million euros gross per season, 4 million a season in amortization, and 4 million gross in salary. And that's exactly what Lazio are paying, it's just all salary and no amortization. And if we actually pay 30 million or more, some people are reporting 35 million for Coop Miners, then he'll cost the club more than 8 million gross a season, so I'm really surprised we did not go after Kamada. The third midfielder to start this match was Karim Zadadka. I have mixed feelings about Zadadka at the moment. Up until this match, I actually thought he was having an excellent summer. He looked confident, he looked much more involved in training, so I thought, okay, he could be a good squad player again, and he might even feature more this season than he did last season. Then he got a massive chance in this match after Lobotka won the ball in the center of the Girona half. He played the pass to Zerbin, and Napoli were 2v1 with a Girona defender. Zerbin squared the ball to Zedadka, and he had only Juan Carlos to beat from close range, and he shot straight at the goalkeeper. I think that might have been a decisive moment for Garcia. Had Zedadka scored there, that goal would have served as confirmation of his progress. Instead, he missed. Now, he might still be a squad player, but that miss probably hurt his chances of playing a more meaningful role with the club. In the second half, Garcia replaced Lozano with Lobotka, so Zadadka moved up to right wing, and Zerbin moved to left wing. 
Okay, that will do for part one. In part two, we'll talk about the forwards and the penalty shootout. Then I'll give you my thoughts on a few general topics, namely the difficulty for Napoli fans outside of Italy. To- With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Watch these friendlies and what appears to be an injury crisis developing. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to part two of the Forza Napoli podcast. If you like the show, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash pod. It's entirely voluntary, there are no set tiers, but it does help us to continue to produce content both on the podcast and on our website at forzanapolipress.com. Alright, so let's move on to the attack. Quicha Kvaraschelia did not suit up for this match after suffering a blunt force trauma in the Hatayspor match. As of Saturday, Kavada has still not trained with the squad, so that is definitely a concern. As a result, Garcia played Chucky Lozano on the left wing, which many people will tell you is his natural position. Personally, I think he's just as much of a left winger as he is a right winger. There's certainly no data to support the notion that he is better on the left. The fact that Lozano started this match was basically confirmation that he was not going to be joining LAFC, at least not this summer because Wednesday was the MLS transfer deadline. There's still the possibility Lozano goes to the US in the winter. I saw one journalist speculating, perhaps hopefully, about that possibility. Aside from that miss I mentioned in part one, I thought Lozano was actually pretty good in the 45 minutes that he played. As I said, he linked up well with Michael Foloruncho, and I thought he linked up well with Simeone as well. Politano played the final half hour on the right wing, replacing Zadadka. Politano's agent, Mario Giuffredi, confirmed recently that Politano indeed wants to remain at Napoli. So at the moment, it appears we'll be sticking with Lozano and Politano on the right wing, which is a little bit disappointing. Neither of them played particularly well last season. Most Napoli fans recognize the right wing as a point of weakness. Maybe it will be stronger if we play Raspadori there. We'll have to see what Garcia has in mind. But it seems like the chances are pretty slim of us bringing in another winger like Tete to play on the right side. Alessio Zerbin started on the right wing, which was also a change for him. As long as I followed him, he's been a left winger. My feelings about Zerbin are pretty similar to my feelings about Zedadka. They are very mixed. I think at best he is a squad player that won't feature a whole lot for us. I have to say I'm a little disappointed with Zerbin. He came back to Napoli after a very strong season with Frosinone in Serie B. 
He's a club-grown player, so he didn't cost us anything, and he spent the whole season under a coach in Luciano Spalletti, who, amongst other things, is fantastic at developing and improving young talent. And yet, watching him this summer, I see very little improvement to the player that we saw last summer. In fact, I thought he was much better last summer than he has been this season. So yeah, I'm disappointed with how he's panned out. Giovanni Simeone completed the Napoli attack and he was very good once again. We are so fortunate to have Simeone as our backup striker. This is a player who appears to be perfectly happy in the role he plays, knowing that so long as Victor Osimhen is healthy, he is not going to start a ton of matches. And yet, he just keeps delivering on every stage, from the biggest stage like the Champions League to the smallest stage like a summer friendly against Girona. I think he is the best backup striker in the league, and I don't think it's particularly close. For a second there, it seemed like Gianluca Scamacca would challenge Simeone for that title if he signed for Inted, but Atalanta swooped in with the boatload of cash that they are about to get from Manchester United for the sale of Rasmus Hoyland, and appeared to have pulled the rug out from beneath Inter's feet. Now who knows, maybe Scamacca can still challenge for the best backup striker as an Atalanta player because they've already signed El Bilal Toure, who's probably going to play up top alongside Adam Ola-Lukman in Atalanta's front too. Now I may be biased, but after last season, I would take Simeone over Scamacca any day of the week. Simeone scored 9 goals and added 1 assist in only 765 minutes of play last season, and 4 of those goals were in the Champions League. Scamacca scored 8 goals in 1,342 minutes, but 2 of those goals were in Conference League qualifiers, and 3 of those goals were in the Conference League final tournament, compared to Simeone's 4 goals in the Champions League. Also, Scamacca missed half of last season because of a meniscus injury that required surgery to repair, so there's also the risk of another knee injury. I would never wish that on a player, even for an opponent, but the reality is that there's a pretty high rate of recurrence when it comes to knee injuries. In this match, Simeone was easily our most dangerous player in the attack. In the sixth minute, he had a powerful volley that was well stopped by Juan Carlos, he nearly scored on the rebound, but that shot was blocked by a Girona defender. In the 27th minute, he tested his luck from distance, and it looked like that shot was going to finish in the back of the goal, but it took a slight deflection off a Girona defender and went out for a corner kick. And then he converted the penalty kick with great conviction, smashing the ball into the top corner. It was a perfectly struck penalty kick. Juan Carlos did not stand a chance. So three goals in two matches for Cholito. Victor Osimhen wasn't available for this match, so Giacomo Raspadori replaced Simeone in the second half. Now Raspadori and the rest of the regular starters looked okay in the final half hour of the match, but they didn't create any real clear-cut chances. Actually, Girona had the two best chances in the final quarter of the match. So under normal circumstances, the match would have ended as a 1-1 draw. However, because this was a friendly, the result was decided by a penalty shootout. I actually thought that was a great idea for a couple of reasons. First, a lot of fans showed up to watch the match and only got to see the regular starters for half an hour, so this was a nice bit of entertainment for them. And second, we weren't very good from the spot last season, and should we reach the knockout stage of the Champions League, which is certainly a minimum objective, we could find ourselves in a penalty shootout. 
So the penalty kicks need practicing and doing them in a match-like environment is better than practicing them in training with none of the usual pressures. One of the big takeaways from this match was that the shootout went really, really well for us. We won 3-1 after 4 rounds, so we scored 3 out of our 4 shots. Raspadori scored first using a bit of a stutter step before sending the keeper the other way. And Gisa scored second, smashing the ball straight down the middle of the goal. Zielinski's penalty kick was probably the best of the three. It had both power and accuracy. Even though the keeper guessed correctly, the shot was simply too difficult to stop. The only player who didn't convert for Napoli was Matteo Politano. His shot struck the upright and stayed out. It's possible the keeper got a hand on the ball. It was difficult to tell. Meanwhile, Girona converted only one of their four penalty kicks. Alex Meret did really, really well, diving to his left to stop the first and diving to his right to stop the fourth. And then Alexander Callens missed Girona's second attempt, skying his shot over the bar. So that was the match against Girona. Now, the next subject I want to give you my thoughts on is the injury situation at Napoli. I hesitate to call it a crisis just yet because most of the injuries we've suffered so far are fairly minor in nature, but they have been piling up. This has been a subject of debate amongst Napoli fans, what's the cause of the injuries, are we overreacting, and so on. Now, I wrote a piece on the site suggesting that these injuries have started to pile up since the departure of athletic trainer Francesco Sinatti, but it's obviously more complicated than that. First of all, there are certain injuries that simply cannot be avoided. The blunt force trauma to Cavada is an example of that. Perhaps the knee pain Lobotka suffered falls into that category as well. However, the vast majority of the injuries so far have been muscular in nature. Mario Rui suffered a quad muscle strain in the friendly against Spal. Elif Elmas wasn't in the squad for the Hatechpor match due to a thigh muscle strain. Diego Deme was not in the squad for the Girona match due to a muscle injury as well, while Colisacco and Victor Osimhen were kept out of the squad due to muscle fatigue. Giovanni Simeone had muscle fatigue after the match, and on Friday, we learned that Anguissa has a first-degree calf strain that will keep him out of the squad for three to four weeks. That is a lot of muscle injuries, and when you consider that they all happened after Sinati's departure, it's easy to make that connection. Now, Il Mattino spoke to Giuseppe Pondrelli, who is the athletic trainer under Walter Mazzari, and I tend to agree with his take on this entire situation. He said the change in methodology may have had an impact. He said it's normal that there must be a period of adaptation to new training methodologies for footballers who have had two years of using different training techniques. He added that injuries have multiple factors, and a decisive factor was the World Cup in December. Normally that month is used to recover, which is really important. Instead, the players were put under great physical and mental stress. So for those reasons, he doesn't blame the athletic staff. Now, I'm no expert on the subject, but one thing I read about Rongoni when I was working on a piece about the new staff was that he prefers to train more on the field and less in the gym, which is also something that has been confirmed by the training sessions that have been broadcast, so I wonder if that in any way has contributed to the increase in muscular injuries. Another factor to consider is that Rongoni uses a lot of technology and data to assess the physical performance of the players. If you watch the Girona match, you might have seen Simeone holding a device in his hand at one point like a small remote control. Usually those are strapped to the players beneath their shirt, 
so I must have fallen off, but that's tracking various stats on the players. Sometimes they have devices like that in their shoes as well. That additional information could be allowing the coaches and the training staff to identify potential injuries at an earlier stage. And based on the evidence, I think this is what is going on. That is, we've had a higher occurrence of injury, but also a quicker recovery time. Lobotka missed the match against Spell, but he returned immediately for the match against Hatayspor. Now, he did have his knee taped for a while, but that even was removed for the training session on Saturday. Likewise, Elmas missed the Hatayspor match, but rebounded for the Girona match. Demme missed that match as well, but he's back to full training with the group. Simeone had some muscle fatigue after the Girona match, and he's training normally as well. Really, the only two players who have real injuries are Mario Rui and Anguissa, and even their injuries are fairly minor. Three to four week recovery time is actually not that bad. It seems the rest of the players are being kept out for precautionary reasons in order to avoid more serious injuries down the road. The last thing I want to talk about is the availability of these matches, or lack thereof, to the viewing public, particularly for those of us who do not reside in Italy. If you're wondering where I've been watching these matches, it's been entirely through illegal streams on YouTube and Facebook, and that's because the club sold the rights to Sky Sport, who then sell the matches on a pay-per-view basis. So even if you have a VPN, you cannot watch these matches without signing up for Sky Sport. This is even worse than last year when the club charged something like $10 a match to watch these games on the club's Facebook page. Now, there were a lot of complaints from the public about that, and viewership numbers were really poor, which I suspect is why the club scrapped the idea altogether. But for a club whose new motto is a new era from Napoli to the world, I find it ridiculous that it's next to impossible to watch these matches from anywhere other than Italy. When I posted about that, a lot of people were quick to also note how difficult it is to get the new kit outside of brick and mortar locations in Italy as well. So the club is not really putting their money where their mouth is. Meanwhile, Juventus and Milan played their summer friendlies in the United States, and Inter played theirs in Japan. Now, I completely understand De Laurentiis' logic for training at Di Maro and Castel di Sangro. He'd rather the club spend more time preparing for the upcoming season than flying across the world and having to adapt to different time zones. I get that. Also, the weather conditions are ideal up in the mountains, whereas Juve and Milan were training and playing in the scorching heat of California and Florida. But from a marketing perspective, those clubs are doing way more for their fans than Napoli are. Napoli don't seem to know how to generate value from clicks and eyeballs on social media, because if they did, they'd be broadcasting these matches for free on their social media channels. Okay, that is where I will leave it. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating and or a review on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter mostly at Joel underscore Fischetti5. And you can find the podcast on Twitter or whatever the hell it's called these days, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Pod. I will be back next week, hopefully to profile Nathan and to review our match on Sunday against Augsburg. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre!
Social Podcast Network.